Welcome to part two of the season finale of Voices of Recovery. I'm your host, Jackie Danziger. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, be sure to start there because we're diving right back in. Last week, we introduced you to Lori and Andrew, a mother and son who adore each other. Andrew was the golden child. He was great at everything he did. He was great at sports. He was great. You know, he was well-liked. We were buddies in some ways, you know, because we were, like I said, we kind of grew up together. I just know that my mom was like me. Like, we were ride or dies. Like, it's like, you mess with one of us, you get both of us. They loved each other. But Lori was a parent in active addiction. So Andrew had to take on a lot of responsibilities from a young age. Uh, Yeah, I felt like I was the parent at 13, 14 years old. You know, keeping everybody safe, keeping people, you know, diapers changed, people fed. Because my mom would disappear for hours on end sometimes. I felt like a babysitter. I felt like a parent. Uh, I felt like a... Um, you know, like a lost child. You know, he saw a lot of things, you know, when he lived with me. But Andrew was also in the beginnings of his use as well. And this is where we left off last week. Andrew avoided drugs and alcohol throughout his adolescence because his commitment to sports kept him focused. But Lori and Andrew's lives were on parallel tracks. Both had experienced early trauma, and both had developed a pattern of destructive behavior to cope with that trauma. At 13, Andrew started drinking and smoking marijuana. Now that he and his mom were using, the dynamic in their home changed pretty quickly. My house kind of became the party house. Um, His buddies would come over there. Um, Not only would I buy them alcohol, I would sell weed to some of his friends. So... I kind of got to be, you know, I was the type of mom that was like, well, if you guys want me to buy you 40, you need to run down to Safeway and steal me a bunch of candles. I mean, that's that's the honest truth. Andrew will tell you funny, you know, it's kind of funny now, but about them, you know, going into Safeway with backpacks and stealing all this, you know, stuff I told them so that they could, you know, get drunk that night. But that's where my disease took me is I didn't even care that these were, you know, 13, 14 year old kids. And I was sending them to commit a, you know, crime. My house was the place to be. So like I always had friends over. I mean, why wouldn't you want to go to someone's house when your mom, their mom would buy you whatever you wanted if you went and stole things for her. So it was kind of like a bartering house. Like, oh, mom, what do you need? Okay, we'll go steal it for you. And then will you buy us this, this, and this? Uh, I think a lot of parents would have tried to... I don't know if it's like protect your kids or try and hide it from them, whatever definition you might want to use. But uh, I think a lot of parents would have tried to shun away from being so transparent with their kid. Uh, There was definitely not a mom-son relationship. There was like no boundaries. There was no, um, I mean, it was just like a great friendship. His mom may have been a great buddy, but Andrew learned pretty early on that he'd have to fend for himself. I could rely on her for a good meal every once in a while. Um, But... As far as other things, it was like hit or miss. Like, I knew if I needed anything, I called my grandparents. Like, that was just what I did. If I needed a ride, if I needed some food, or if I needed, um, you know, just a break, uh, I would call them just because they've always been um, what I call my guardian angels. Like, they're just my rock. So, 
if I need anything, I'd call them. Um, I didn't know what I'd get for my mom. Uh, usually, especially if, you know, she was higher loaded. Andrew needed to call on his grandparents more and more the older he got. Lori's drug use escalated, and the dangerous elements that previously lurked in the periphery started showing up closer to home. I was hanging out with people that were pretty rough, pretty um, dangerous, and they were around my kids. I accidentally, you know, got pregnant with my daughter. I pretended like I didn't for a really long time. So I drank and I used meth. The baby's dad was a lot younger than Lori. She referred to him as the kid throughout the interview. Their relationship was casual. He was just another character in the rotating cast of dangerous people coming in and out of their house. Uh, This guy that I'd hooked up with that was really a scary gangster, you know, that I was running around doing stuff with. And that's when... Shit really fell apart because my parents were horrified, first of all. Um, things just really started to go downhill. Um, I got raided. I know the night for that change for me is when our house got raided and, uh, by undercover police officers, DHS. Uh, they had had our phones tapped. It was like a scene out of a movie. It was like, what is going on here? Who are all these people? Like, why are you coming in our house? So all my kids were there when this raid happened. I didn't even take that seriously. You know, I just kind of still felt six foot tall and bulletproof. And what what are you going to do to me? I thought for sure that night that my mom was going to jail or prison. And I was like, here we go again. You know, uh, going to have to watch my mom this time walk out the door and look over the shoulder. Uh, for whatever reason, they didn't take her. They didn't take any of my brothers or myself out of the situation. I knew they were coming because I have enough contacts to know that, anyways. And so I didn't have any dope when they got there. They found a few things, but they and they were mad because they thought I, would, I the information that they were given is that I was going to have a lot of drugs there, and I should have. But I smartened up, and I figured something was going on because somebody. Um, Actually, that kid uh, got out of jail on like five felony counts, and he just walked out, and he knew my business. From Lori's perspective, she'd pretty much outsmarted the police. What could have led to major jail time ended up being an event that was momentarily scary, but largely inconsequential. Still, it was a police raid in their home. And it may not have been a wake-up call for Lori, but it was for Andrew. That was the last draw for me. Um, I finally called my grandparents and was like, I'm done. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm like, this is what's been going on. Like, I can't play this two-life game anymore. I need a different avenue to live. I can't live here anymore. Um, I, you know, I, I hate to do it to my mom, but I just can't be here. At that point, I was at my emotional bottom, and I was pretty much scared straight. So they opened up their doors, and I started living with them. And it was probably the hardest decision I've had to make still. Um, You know, I felt like I was giving up on my mom, but at the time I felt like there was nothing I could do. For a short period of time after the raid, Andrew lived with his grandparents while his brothers remained with his mom. He felt like he was leaving them behind, but his grandparents were working behind the scenes to gain custody of their grandkids. I don't think it was too long after they took my brother's You know, they kind of gave my mom like an ultimatum, like, okay, we kind of know what's going on now. You need to either figure it out or we're going to intervene. 
then like my dad came with them, the cops and took my, confiscated my vehicle. And, and so things started getting really bad, really quick. My parents finally stepped in. I was served with court papers. They'd taken my kids. I had to show up, you know, I show I showed up for court. I mean, I showed up for court because I, I really still didn't get that I, my kids, I wasn't going to get my kids. You know, I still, it, my disease just had me so, there's nothing wrong here, you know? And, you know, of course they just, my parents' lawyer just ate me alive. I mean, I remember when she, you know, examined me saying things like, you know, didn't you have mice in your house? And, and, um, or where do you get your money? And, you know, oh, how are you going to support, you know, just very, just made me look like a idiot dope fiend that I was. <laughs> but I remember still being really numb. You know, when I was on meth, I could stay pretty numb. But I remember when it did hit me that I lost. I mean, the court, the judge didn't even take a recess. He just ruled. When I came home from court is when it really hit me that I'd never been away from my kids. You know, I'd never had, you know, where I had this big, huge house. And, and I remember I went to bed with a gallon of tequila. And I just basically, if I woke up, I mean, for days, because I remember people standing in my bedroom and sometimes like, hey, are you, are you okay? And, and I remember just drinking and then just going back to sleep. Lori was alone and powerless. Her kids were gone and she was left in an empty house. But she couldn't totally give over to her depression because... Well, I was still pregnant with my kid. And at this point, I was like five months along, I think. You know, I did have a conscience around having a baby that was uh, drug addicted. In an attempt to practice some form of prenatal care, she agreed to go to treatment. But just like her first attempt at recovery, Lori's heart just wasn't in it yet. So I went to Willamette Family. I stayed for about 60 days. Didn't really do anything, just kind of goofed around. <laughs> you know, I mean, I went to groups and I did the little bit that I had to, but it was a 90-day program. And after 60, I was like, let me out of here. I went home to my parents' house. So I hung out with my kids and I was pregnant, so I did stay clean. I was really angry about being pregnant. When I had her, um, I almost died. She was in NICU. So that was pretty brutal. Um, and I think I came home. I was probably clean for a, maybe a month, and then I started using. After the difficult pregnancy and birth, Lori returned to the same painful situation she had been in before treatment. She still didn't have custody of her other kids, and relations with her parents were strained at best. With each cycle of relapse, Lori lost more of herself and the relationships that previously grounded her. Increasingly untethered, her inner addict was steering the ship. I started, you know, lying, saying, oh, I'm going to hang out with such and such. And really, I was hanging out with the dopers. Um, I ran into a girl that I'd been clean with, and she was not. And she was running a hell of a lot of cocaine. She was dealing and doing that whole thing. And... And um, I finally, one day, just left my parents' house and just didn't, never came back. I just stopped all contact. 
Did you um, say goodbye to anybody before you left? No. No, I just kind of said I would be back and just never came back. That's when it got really scary. Not so much like physically, but emotionally wearing. was living with my grandparents and not knowing what my mom was up to. I don't know, it must have been like every four or five days I checked the obituaries to see if I'd find my mom's picture there. Uh, just because I knew at the time where she was and what she was doing like before I left. So I just knew without like a home to do it in, um, it had only probably multiplied two or three fold. So uh, I just knew it was a matter of time. The only way for Andrew to survive was to bury his anxieties about his mom and find a way to live day to day. Okay, it's over. I can just move on and start over. So it was like I was living with my grandparents. I was just getting into high school. It's like, I'm good. I can just do school, sports, home, school, sports, home, school, sports, home. Andrew and Lori both needed a way to avoid dealing with the pain. Andrew did it through control, trying to make his school, sports, home routine work. Lori, on the other hand, let go and fell deeper into her addiction. I got strung out on heroin. That was the first time in my life I got really strung out on heroin. And heroin is the drug that made me so I really couldn't feel anything. So I could not feel anything. I mean, I just was completely numbed out. Heroin took me to a level of um, desperation that I've never been at before with my um, drug use. I did things and participated in things that, and I'd been a dope fiend a long time, that I that I never ever had and always said I wouldn't and always had stuck to it. So being strung out on the heroin, um, I got down to about 92 pounds. Um, I lived in a dope house where we were selling drugs, doing drugs, um, taking turns, reviving each other when we OD'd. I didn't know what day it was. I didn't know what time it was. I didn't care. And I lived like that for a long time. I was dope sick. I was having seizures. I was alone in some room. I'd done a whole bunch of heroin the night before, and um, I was just done. And I think I'd been done for a few weeks. I'd gone to jail. I'd um, just, it just one bad thing after another it just kept happening. I just didn't have any fight left you know, in me, and um, I just couldn't get a game going. I just, you know, you always got to be hustling when you're addicted to heroin. You always got to be hustling something, and and uh, I just didn't want to anymore. And I was sick, sick, sick. It was Christmas time when a very sick, very desperate Lori called her mom for help at 2 in the morning. Even though it had been several months since they had had any contact, her mother answered and was willing to help. She said, but I, as soon as it's light out, I can come. So I remember just sitting in this window, just sick and no cigarettes and nothing to drink and, not, you know, just nothing. And I just remember just waiting for it to get light so my mom would come. And she got there and she told me, she said, you pack everything up you own because you're not going back there. Of course, that was consistent of a box like this. It wasn't like I had, you know, suitcases of stuff by then. She took her one box of belongings and left that house. But she couldn't go directly to rehab. The treatment center where Lori was headed didn't have the facilities to safely detox her. They said, uh-uh, you're too sick. You have to go to the emergency room and get 
balanced or whatever they say. And I managed to walk into uh, the emergency room and fall out in a big frickin' seizure. After a couple of nights in the hospital, Lori returned to the treatment center. And for the first time in her many rounds of trying to get clean, she was ready to commit. But she knew herself well enough to understand that she was going to need more than 28 days. But I remember asking this lady, would you call Serenity Lane? I need to go to the Excel program. And I don't know how I knew about it. Someone along the line must have said something to me, and I didn't care about it then. And um, they did call. And I called my mom. And for some, my dad hadn't spoke to me in a long time. And for some reason, my dad agreed to pay. It would be a few days before Lori could start the long-term Excel program at Serenity Lane, and the danger of relapse was lingering. So her mom took her to Dairy Mart to pick up supplies and get her prescriptions filled. They gathered the basics, toothbrush, soap, snacks, and clean clothes. And then she settled into a hotel room to wait. And so I was able to kind of just stay in this hotel room and basically be calm, you know. I remember I still slept a lot. I mean, I was, <laughs> it had been a long couple of years. But I stayed clean, and I remember I was really proud of that because, you know, I was in a hotel down on Franklin Boulevard. I mean, if I wanted to, I could have got something going for myself, probably, but I remember I knew, I knew then this, this is it. I'm not going to use it. What was Excel like? Oh my God, what a trip. I was so street smart and I had this wonderful counselor who was from Louisiana and she was hard on me. And that's what I needed because if anybody had put their hand on my shoulder and said, oh honey, it looks like you've really had it rough for a while. I had a freaking probably knocked her over and stole her purse and left. You know, that it's not how I related to the world. And and she was just like, man, you look like you've been through something, you know? And man, how old are you? Because you sure as hell don't look any younger than 60. And I remember just thinking, you bitch, you know? But it piqued my interest, you know? It was like, wait a minute. I'm not 60 and I better do this so that I don't look 60 anymore. You know, I was 92 pounds. I had hair bigger than my body. You know, I had this, you know, one of my treatment assignments was I had to go to a makeup counter and have someone do my makeup, you know, that didn't do it like I did it. Um, I had to get my hair done, you know, so that it wasn't just this freaking <laughs> whatever that 80s do was, you know, but so that I could look more... You know, I had to wear different clothes, but my counselor would be like, take off those damn pants. Those don't, those don't even, those aren't even right. Because I'd wear, I thought they were really sexy. I had this pair of pants that had uh, leather straps going all the way up. So, you know, you could see my, you know, and everything. She'd be like, you get upstairs and change those damn pants. I would think, how dare you talk to me like that? But I'd always stomp up the stairs and go change my pants. So I always was willing to do what they, they, my counselor told me to do. Serenity Lane's Extended Residential Program, or Excel, is made for people like Lori. It combines tough love clinical therapy with a close quarters living situation rooted in group accountability. They did something probably kind of smart. They made me the group leader. 
Like when I'd only been there like two weeks and I was like, I looked down my name tag and I was like, you must have got me confused because I ain't no group ass, narc ass leader, you know? Um, but you know, what they were trying to do is they were trying to teach me, you know, they were trying to show me that, you know, I was going to obey the rules and I was going to, you know, set this example because to try and be on time and to take care of my business and to not lie and not, you know, whatever. Holy crap. I was in trouble every day. I was, I picked up more cigarette butts than probably anyone in the whole wide world. It's a smoke-free campus now, but back then, Serenity Lane had a lot of patients who smoked and there were always butts to pick up and ashtrays to empty as a means of punishment. Lori may have been in trouble a lot, but she was ultimately happy to comply. She had bigger battles to fight. I wanted to be there, so I, I didn't, I was very, very grateful to be there. I mean, but I was very wounded. Um, I wouldn't sleep in the bed. I would sleep under a table. I was, because that's how I survived. I would sleep in a closet because um, that's how my life had been. I'd had so much violence and so much... Uh, fear and so much, you know, terrible things happen in my life and the lifestyle is living that that's where how it had become like an animal. That violence haunted Lori throughout her life, and it unconsciously fueled so much of her self-destructive behavior. This round of recovery finally helped her face that trauma head on, but it meant going all the way back to that original incident on the playground when she was five. Well, you know, there's that list of things that sexual abuse survivors, the way they behave and the way they think and the way they, they live their lives. And, and I remember this one friend was like, fill this out, take this. And I was like, because I was like, I've never been molested because, you know, I just, I haven't been molested. You guys are crazy. And I basically every question or it was a check mark or a yes. And, and then I told them, and I, Told her, I said, well, you know, when I was like five, these teenagers, and, but, and I said, but they didn't rape me. And she was like, what? <laughs> so I had to be educated on my own abuse. Um, I was just telling my life story. And my life story is very brutal. It's very, but I, because it was my story, I didn't get it. And I remember I was only in group with one other woman at the time. And I remember I was doing, you know, you're up there and you're just kind of trying not to look at anybody. And you're, and I remember I turned around and all the men were crying. And I was thinking, somebody die. And I didn't, you know, because I still didn't, I was just so, and that's when my male counselor in the group, he pointed at me and he said, you have a lot of work to do because that is how numbed out and how checked out you are. And I took that as a challenge instead of, oh God. I'm such a, you know, I knew it. There's no hope for me, you know? Yeah. So I was like, and you're going to watch me because I'm going to be one of the people that's going to make it. Lori was clean and sober and ready to prove how far she'd come. She dug in her heels and began to clear some of the emotional wreckage. I had a lot of work to do on a lot of the behaviors that I participated in and the level of violence I had had participated in and been a victim of, um, I think that they were, it was mostly just trying to kind of put some pieces back together of me mm -hmm. because so that maybe I could step out of there and I could somehow have a chance because I was so broken, just, just broken. 
And so I don't think that what did I do, I did a lot of work in group. I did every assignment that they told me to do. You know, I think my life really changed when I was trying to do that. Well, you know, they took my kids and my counselor got up in my face in group and was like, she was like, child, they didn't take your kids. You gave them away. You gave them away. You chose drugs over them. And I remember I wanted to throat punch her. But that was when my life changed because I, I realized that there was no victim. Yeah, I got victimized because of the choices that I made. But I was a dope fiend. And when I start doing drugs and drinking, these are the terrible things that happen. But I had that choice to pick up. And I think I really started to get that. If I just didn't pick up, if that's all I accomplished, then I was good. Soon, Lori's stay in Excel was complete, and she had to start transitioning back into regular life. Oh, let's see. I moved into a women's recovery house. Um, so, And that, I really knew I wanted to do it then, because that didn't sound like my cup of tea. Um, I did what they told me to do. I just did what they told me to do. They told me to get in a recovery house and I needed to get a job. I needed to go to outpatient. I needed, you know, I just, I was just kind of in a place where if you told me to do something, I did it unless I didn't like you and then I wouldn't. But you know, the people that I had chosen were going to be my people, my tribe. If they said, you need to do this, then I did it. Did I do it perfect? No. Reentry into life after getting sober especially after the safety of residential, is bumpy. People have to relearn how to do everything. It's scary and overwhelming, and those feelings soften over time. But for many people, they never completely go away. The world baffled me. The world still baffles me sometimes. Sometimes I'm still like, what am I supposed to do here? What am I supposed to do here? I don't know. It's taken me years to learn how to be okay in the world, and I still struggle with that. And how about what were your interactions with your kids like at that point? Mm -hmm strained. I was debating whether I even wanted to be their mother, which was incredibly shameful for me, but I was incredibly overwhelmed by them. Um, I felt completely like an outcast and like I didn't know what I was supposed to do. I didn't really enjoy them. Um, I just, I just didn't know what, I just, I'd never really been that great a mother Anyways, I still had, I've always had a really hard time connecting on a level that I see other mothers connect with their children. So, um, and I think that's just from past abuse. I just have really, I mean, I've been clean 13 years and I still keep people about here, you know, so. Is that both physically and spiritually you have that, that guard up? Yes. Like just sitting here with you this close has just made me freaking almost crazy. Oh. While Lori was off on her own path, Andrew was still where we left him, back at his grandparents, sticking with school, sports, home. For a brief moment, his single-minded fixation worked. He stopped drinking for about six weeks and focused instead on healthy distractions, like academics and a budding high school romance. But like Lori before her last round of treatment, Andrew still had a lot of unresolved pain and no real outlet for any of it. He soon resumed drinking and it escalated quickly. At what point did you start to realize that you might be following the same path as your mom? Uh, junior year for sure. I, I always used my mom as a gauge. So it's like, well, this is what my mom was doing and this is what I'm doing, so I'm doing all right. 
And I even, I mean, I've told my mom before, but I got caught a few times when I was younger, like 13 or 14 at our house by my grandparents. And uh, I always blamed it on my mom. Uh, She was my scapegoat. Scapegoating his mom worked in the sense that it kept his grandparents from laying down the law. He was also a gifted athlete, and the status that came with being a varsity football player earned him leeway with some of his teachers, even as his partying got out of control. Looking back on it, I was getting, you know, special treatment at school. Uh, you probably shouldn't be able to skip a history class 44 times and still get a B plus. Like, I don't understand how that works. So it was like when I was like building on my ego and just like pride, pride, ego, ego uh, is when I started drinking a lot. And then when I was a senior, I got hurt playing football. I dislocated my left kneecap. I felt like the lollipop pop and they told me I had torn my ACL and I wasn't going to believe that. So uh, I got a second opinion and then they're like, oh yeah, we'll just drain your knee. We'll give you a cortisone shot. You'll be good in two weeks. I'm like, oh, awesome. And uh, that wasn't the case. Um, I had two cortisone shots, two knee drains and missed my whole senior basketball season. And that's when it really escalated. Um, Like all the offers dropped and it was like that, like I mentioned earlier, like my one of my main goals was to play college sports, and it was like, well, it's gone now. And so uh, the best way for me to deal with that was uh, drugs and alcohol. And uh, so I picked it up super heavy. I was drinking at school all the time. Uh, I was dr- smoking weed during, like, th- every three periods. You know, it was the best way. I knew how to numb myself. Like I said, I didn't ever talk about anything. I definitely wasn't going to talk about this. It was like, you know, I just... I didn't feel, I don't know, uh, I didn't feel like a man, I guess, uh, if I was going to say it, because I, I didn't want to feel like poor me, even that's what I really felt like was poor me. Like, here's another instance where uh, I get the short end of the stick. Like, couldn't you just give me this one time, God? Like, come on, man. I didn't. I haven't asked for much um, besides Hail Marys and wanting to be cool sometimes. Okay, like, so, um, yeah, I, like... My drinking increased a lot. Andrew's one healthy outlet was suddenly taken away. Just like when Lori lost her kids, he lost the one thing that kept him grounded. Self-destruction was the only way he knew how to deal with years of buried feelings. So his answer was to drink. I had this swimming class and I would drink all the time in the sauna and then like go in the hot tub and then go back to school because that was like second period. It was just a disaster. I mean, I was I was insane, like, doing some of the things that I was doing at school. I love hard alcohol, so I wasn't ever a beer drinker, so, uh, and I don't, I have, like, no gag reflex, and I don't throw up, so um, for an alcoholic, those are two wonderful attributes. I would always just drink just as much as I could, as fast as I could, and then go back to school. And then 15 minutes later, I'd have the sweats, the spins, and incoherently be able to not do anything. I remember getting kicked out of class a few times because the teachers were like football coaches, whether they were freshmen or JV, and they're like, you need to leave. I'm like, what do you mean I need to leave? Don't you know who I am? Mm-hmm. Like, exactly, that's what I'm telling you. I'm like, oh, okay. And I started stealing a lot then too. Um, I'd break into people's lockers and steal whatever I wanted uh, and rummage through their things just for like, I just trying to fill a hole, uh, realistically, uh, trying to, 
you know, I was like, I need to do something. And so um, found a friend who knew how to pop open lockers, and that was like my new thing. You know, kind of just like stroke my ego, like, oh, I can take whatever I want. I wasn't selling it or anything like that. It was like just things that I would want. Um, whether it be like CDs or a sweet calculator or somebody's jacket and uh, or gym bag or something like that. Things I didn't even need um, or could have if I asked for it. This reminded me of something his mom told me. That she spent so much of her life feeling small and powerless. And some of her most aggressive behavior was just a desperate attempt to feel strong. Beyond petty theft, Andrew's behavior was becoming unmanageable in other ways. And his grandparents were catching on. I know later on they knew because I was still living with them and I couldn't get my key in the door. So, like, that's a pretty good indication that i am probably been out too long. <laughs> I was always, like, drinking under their roof and smoking weed under their roof and taking pills and stuff. He knew how to manipulate my parents because he was their favorite. You know, he was the one that they basically raised. And, um... And, uh, I mean, my God, they were paying his bar tabs because he would just use this credit card, and he didn't have any money to pay it. And my dad would scream and yell, but he'd pay his bar tabs, you know? And I'm thinking, Jesus, you never did that for me. <laughs> Sometimes, all you can do in life is laugh. And Lori has a knack for finding the ridiculousness in painful realities. I asked if she remembered when Andrew's use escalated past youthful rebellion into something more serious. It was progressing quite nicely. Um, I think um, by the time I had two years is when his was getting really bad, where I was constantly going to the emergency room. I didn't like to fight uh, until my disease progressed a lot, and I loved to run my mouth and be other people's punching bag. For about two and a half years, um, I was always going to the hospital or like calling my mom saying, Mom, I need help. I was constantly being called because he was, you know, doing something crazy or, or whatever. And um, I tried to talk to him about his problem, but of course it was always, oh yeah, I just won't drink that. You know, my disease for me progresses like every six months. So once I turned 21, it was like hospital every six months. My mom told me that she was always waiting by the phone, you know, about like every six months because she knew it was coming. And it was hard. It was hard for me um, because I knew he was like me, and I would try and talk to him about that. And so he would, you know, he he did some things too. Like he went to outpatient to be like, you know, I'll just kind of slide. You know, he's a lot like his mother. I did exactly what my mom did. Um, I went through outpatient, didn't drink, didn't use any kinds of mind-altering substances. Andrew was deeper into his relationship at this time. And like his mom had once done with him, he put the responsibility on his girlfriend for setting and breaking the rules around his drinking. I put it in my girlfriend's hands like, hey, you just let me know when you think I can drink again. And it was like slow, like, okay, you can have two drinks tonight. And so every time she turned her back, I would take a double shot. So uh, I never did anything in moderation. And I always was sneaky. Looking back on it, it's like so much effort. Like, I never knew what lies I told, um, especially to who. So it was just a nightmare sometimes trying to just talk to people. I would get so much anxiety because, oh, man, what did I tell him? I don't even remember. The main recipients of Andrew's lies? His grandparents, who were finally running out of excuses for their golden child. I think near the end they had a really good idea because uh, my last use they were going to kick me out the next day. 
which for them is, uh, I don't even know how they came to that conclusion realistically because, you know, like I always feel like I'm this golden child. So when they told me that, I was like, there's no way you guys are going to kick me out. And they're like, yeah. I was like, wow, it was that bad? I had no idea. But looking back now, it was like, yeah, it was a S show. It was just terrible. It had been another night of drinking for Andrew. He had come home. My mom called me and she said, I just need to let you know that um, I don't know what's going to happen today. You know, this has got to stop. We just can't do this anymore. They didn't get to have that conversation with me um, because that night, uh, my last use, I decided that I was going to commit suicide in their house. And so um, my grandpa picked me up. I was wandering the streets that night. And I'd lived in Eugene my whole life. I couldn't tell him where I was. And he brought me back to the house. And I guess I was just, I'd, I was done. I was uh, spiritually bankrupt. My dad called me a little while later and was like, Andrew's tried, he's taken a bunch of pills and he's not responding. And um, the ambulance is on its way. And I was like, what? I remember that day like it was yesterday. I remember racing to the hospital with another one of my sons. I remember being there when the ambulance got there. I remember um, listening to, he had um, OD'd on an antidepressant. And so his, he kept having seizures. I remember when I saw him have his first seizure, I remember I just started screaming. I mean, I just couldn't even, you know, I just, I just couldn't even fathom what was happening, you know what I mean? And and he was so drunk and stoned, and and I remember just thinking, oh, well, what's this going to be like? Is this going to be where well, they're just going to send him home in a little while, you know? Because then they were like, he's going up to ICU. He's in really bad shape. This um, We can't pump his stomach. The medicine's already in him. We're going to have to wait this out. I stayed with him that night. I stayed in uh, because I, I wanted to, and he was out of his mind. He was agitated. He was out of his mind because um, I remember when I said to the nurse, you know, I said, I, I need to go smoke or something. <laughs> and he's like, you know, I, th I think you should stay out for a while because I think you're agitating him. And I remember thinking, well, who don't I agitate? Odd. <laughs> A little high strung, but, <laughs> you know. But, um, and then I remember I just laid out on the couch and, the, and they promised they would come get me if anything. But um, I remember, I think the next day they moved him to a room. He was starting to, and I stayed. I mean, I didn't go to work. I, I was there from morning till uh, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock at night. That was like my first real spiritual experience was like coming back to life uh, four days after like a medical induced in coma. Like I said, I, I vividly remember just making the decision, okay, it's time to be out of here. I give up. And uh, so when I woke up, I was like, well, this isn't what I planned for. Like I was done. Like I don't want to do this anymore. Um, and then I was confused. And then I looked around and I saw my mom and I was like, what's going on? And honestly, I wasn't even scared, which is really scary to me. Like, I wasn't scared at all when I woke up or I was there. It was like, when can I get out of here? Lori knew what was happening, and she knew what needed to be done. No more enabling. I, you know, I had just told my parents, I said, you have to stop. You have to stop enabling him. You, we have to force him to go to treatment. 
And the way that we'll force him is we'll tell him that he doesn't have anywhere to go. So first things I talked to the hospital, I said, you can't release him. Don't release him until we can get something else into place. And so I was like, all right, I'll agree to do like, what, three weeks inpatient? Is that good? And she's like, no. I'm like, well, what then? She's like, well, I want you to do 28 days and then 60 days in Excel. And I was like, it's like three months. <laughs> like, you think I need treatment for three months? Like, I know what to do. I watched you do it. I've already been to outpatient mom. She's like, that's the deal. And I was like, <sighs> I said to my son, I said, here's your, here's the choice. We can get you um, into Serenity Lane. You can stay there and you can go to um, their long-term program. Or they can discharge you from the hospital and you can walk out of here because nobody's going to give you a ride. And you're not going to have any money. You're not going to have, you're not going to be able to come to Nan and Poppy's. You're not coming to my house. So you're going to have nothing. So you have a choice and it's your choice. You can go. And he was pissed, but he went and he stayed. And then I went to treatment and, uh, honestly, it was probably the best thing for me at the time. I didn't go there with the intention to stop drinking or using. I went there to learn how to drink like a gentleman, is what I like to call it. Because I didn't know anybody at 23 who wasn't drinking. Like, I just thought that's what you do. I mean, it's just, that is what you do when you're 23. I had found my groove, and emotions suck to deal with, so I didn't ever deal with them, and so I used drugs and alcohol. Andrew largely skipped the part of childhood and early adulthood where you learn to deal with difficult feelings. He was following his mom's tumultuous path, and he even saw some familiar faces along the way, which did not exactly make things easier. My counselor there I knew prior. Um, he had gotten clean when my mom first got clean, so he knew me from when I was a little kid. So when I got put into the young men's group and he was my counselor, it was like, oh, man, I can't hide. You know, he knows who I am. He knows my family. Um, so he really challenged me. Uh, the young men's group was pretty uh, challenging itself. I'll never forget it because he called me and he was crying and he was like, "This isn't. those people aren't like me. They're really mean. They're really mean to me. I don't think I'm like them. And I'm like, <laughs> I remember the, the whole initiation. They were really mean to me too, but I could have cared less. He got through the initiation, as Lori put it, and settled in to do the work. He learned to communicate some of the things he'd been taught to bury and started to address his resentments. That was the first time I got an assignment to um, really depict on what I want my higher power to be or what it looks like to me or what I would want from one. And for me, that was um, really insightful because I always had a resentment towards God um, due to the hand I was dealt. So. Um, to look at that and write down things that I would want from a higher power really changed my perspective of, of what I was looking for. It was everything that I would want from a parent. Um, it was loving, caring, gentle, always there when I would need some to talk, you know, compassionate, non-judgmental, things like that. Andrew's childhood was defined by inconsistency and instability. So it makes sense that his higher power took the form of the loving, reliable parental figure 
that was missing from those early years. To her credit, Lori knows she was absent, and she works to take a fearless inventory of her mistakes. A lot of it stems from the childhood that he had and how he learned to stuff all his emotions. And, and I, you know, I take, um, I, you know, I take the blame for that and, um, or not maybe the blame, but I'm responsible. You know, I am. And, um, because addiction doesn't choose. You know, I had, I mean, here I was, this mother, I had five kids that needed me. And I, you know, I was laid up in a dope house, shooting as much drugs as I could, just trying to die. And then here my child thought that the only um, option was to die too. How do you, how do you work through that feeling of, you know, could be guilt, could be shame while trying to live that big book, you know, don't regret the past. How do you deal with those feelings? I have worked through the steps on many occasions. Um, I've made uh, written, I still make living amends. Um, but um, I have to just try and stay in the moment because it's very easy for me to just be do 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 and all of a sudden I'm in this terrible memory or, or something that's so, you know, horrifying that uh, happened in front of my son when he was little or um, so... Basically, what I've done with all my children is I've owned my stuff, you know. Uh, I've apologized. I make a living amends to them. I still have a couple kids that are having a really hard time forgiving me. And this is, you know, almost 14 years later. So um, it's one day at a time, you know. How are your kids working through their feelings about this story? Um, all my kids have been in, have worked with therapists. Um um, you know, I've gone to therapy with them, uh, and, um, you know, everybody has their own process. Uh, I, I worry about them because, you know, I've got five of them and each one of them has done their own different thing to deal or not deal. Um, so that's why some of this stuff seems to be coming out later. It's like they got safer, it took him a long time to get safe enough to say, you know what, I'm really mad at you. <laughs> you know, I'm really mad at you. And, um, but, you know, I just, you know, I have a sponsor. I go to meetings. Um, I attend a church. Um, I have a few people, very few people that I trust that I'll actually really open up to. And um, I just don't use no matter what. At the end of the day, that's how it works. Don't drink, don't use, and keep coming back. The rest is on a case-by-case -case basis, and it looks different for everyone. We started our season with people who discovered sobriety in their teens and early 20s. We're ending with a woman who started treatment in her 20s, but it took her decades to find lasting recovery, and she still works for it every day. Is it easy? No. And everyone we talked to would tell you they had to work really hard every step of the way. But in each story we've heard this season, regardless of age or drug of choice, it gets better. People heal. Families heal. You just have to take it one day at a time. 
a junkie like me can get clean. Anybody can. And, you know, I really promote that don't give up five seconds before the miracle. You know, because I've been the family member and I've been the one that's been so hopeless and thinking my child was going to die. And, and I just had to have faith and I just had to hold on. But, you know, um, it can be done, you know, but it's going to take a lot of work, a lot of hard work. Some people, maybe that's what it, my experience was, was that I had to work really hard and I had to stay really vigilant and I had to do the things that I needed to do. But my life is so good and every addict deserves this life. Voices of Recovery was created by Monique and Jackie Danziger and is produced by Serenity Lane Drug and Alcohol Treatment Centers. Writing and production assistance by Monique Danziger. James Tyson is our production coordinator and script supervisor. Our show is edited by me, Jackie Danziger. Our theme and much of the music in this episode was composed by Sammy Gallo with additional tracks by George Polly. Thank you as always to everyone at Serenity Lane who helps make the show possible. Like us on Facebook and Instagram for teasers and episode extras. If you want to support our work or help others find the show, please take a minute to rate and review us. There's a link for that in the show notes.